0: Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode of the podcast, I talk with healthcare reporter Megan Messerly for an extended edition of our regular COVID update to get a better sense of how severe Nevada's coronavirus outbreak is and where things could go from here.
1: After that, Assistant Editor Michelle Rendells and myself talk with two folks who have been watching the US election from abroad, what they think about our system, and their reactions after election night.
0: And at the end of the show, Joey calls up our photographer down in Las Vegas, Jeff Scheid, to hear about his experiences shooting photos for the Indy in 2020.
1: Since about the middle of September, we've seen the number of cases of the coronavirus in Nevada go up and up and up. Well into November, the peak number of new coronavirus cases reported in the state has surpassed our summer peak. And health experts say it's only going to get worse before it gets better. Jacob sat down with Nevada Independent Healthcare reporter Megan Messerly to get a sense of where we are, how we got there, and where we're going to go from here.
0: So Megan, how's it going?
2: It's going great. It's been a really normal uh, news week. Nothing big has happened. It's been great.
0: Very chill. Well, Megan, so normally we have these chats, we have them once a week, um, and we just talk about the numbers. You know, how's the coronavirus doing in Nevada? Has the state done anything? All this kind of stuff. But this week is different, and it feels different, I think, when it comes to talking about COVID-19. Can you break down why is that?
2: Yeah, so essentially, as, as we've been talking about, you know, every week, case numbers are are growing. But but the difference this week is that um, Governor Sisolak held a press conference and essentially gave the state two weeks to turn things around, to turn the case numbers, hospitalizations, test positivity uh, around, just because the numbers don't look great right now. So to give a sense of sort of way, where things are at right now, um, today, we're recording this on, on Thursday, Thursday, uh, late afternoon. Uh, there were 1,445 new cases reported Uh, today, and that means today has set uh, a new record seven-day average. Uh, That number is 1,365 cases. Uh, That means that's how many cases have been reported on average each day over the last seven days. That number will actually still grow because the way data rolls in, Elko County and the Quad Counties, which is uh, Carson, Lyon, Douglas, and Story, don't report until late in the evening, so that number will likely be even higher by the end of the day. Uh, today, in total, since the beginning of the pandemic, there have been 115,313 cases since March. Uh, that sounds like a big number, but what does that mean? That that actually means that one in 28 Nevadans has tested positive for COVID-19, and we know there were some cases, um, especially the early uh, parts of the pandemic, that didn't get captured. So this is just of the known uh, individual human beings who have tested positive for COVID. So one, one in 28 And then there have been 1,880 deaths since March, including 54 in the last week, and a a, a little bit over 98,000 people have recovered from, from COVID in Nevada.
0: So this isn't just a Nevada problem, this is a national problem and still a global problem. But even when we break down just how the virus is affecting Nevada specifically, we're seeing some geographic splits, I think, that are pretty clear. And I'm specifically talking here about Washoe and Clark County. So I guess as a baseline, what's so different between Washoe and Clark County when it comes to COVID-19?
2: Yeah, so for folks who, who've been following the, the data in this pandemic, you might remember that it was Clark County that saw a really big spike in in cases over the summer and, and Washoe County did not see this the same spike, at least not to the same extent. Washoe County, though, now is really bearing bearing the burden of, of this um, c- case increase. There have been some rural counties as well that have seen really significant case spikes as well. But just to give you a sense of what that looks like, so today, Thursday, there were 974 new cases reported in Clark County compared to 433 cases in Washoe County. So you look at those two numbers, it's a little bit less than half in Washoe, but let's just say half for sake of the argument, And Washoe has about a fifth of the population that that Clark County does. So we're really seeing, you know, dramatic case numbers in, in Washoe County, sort of these record case numbers being reported each day. Um, And if you go back and you look at the seven-day averages, because again, we know there can be some of these day-to-day fluctuations. Um, Clark County's seven-day average, the number of new cases uh, being reported each day, is 888 right now. They actually have not reached um, the peak that they saw over the summer. That number was 1,072, and that was in July. So cases are increasing in Clark County. The situation is not great in Clark as well. but, But on its own, Clark has actually not reached its peak from the summer. When we contrast that to where Washoe's at, their seven day case average right now is three hundred and fifty six. And its peak over the summer was only ninety-eight. So they're significantly higher uh, than where they were. You know, Washoe County District Health Officer Kevin Dick this week on a on a press call said that, you know, case numbers are three point five times what they were at the at the beginning of even October. So cases are just growing really rapidly in in Washoe County, uh, which is why we've seen some of the some some of the emphasis on on preparations from from hospitalizations up there. Uh, Renown uh, Regional Hospital, you know, recently announced they're, you know they're readying again their alternate care site in their parking garage. Some people might have seen photos of this on on social media, but um, you know, really saying that, the, that we're getting to a dire situation, and you know, people need to know that this this is where we're headed. Um, renowned CEO T- Tony Slonim actually spoke at that press conference with Governor Sisolak this week and said, you know, it, you know we don't want to get to the situation where we're treating patients in our parking garage in this facility that we've set up. But, um, but, but that's where things, you know, might, might get to if, if the numbers don't improve.
0: So I want to get to that press conference. And you mentioned it here that, that Governor Steve Sisolak announced this week, stay at home 2.0. But it's not quite what we had in the spring, um, at least not in the sense that the state is taking a lot of concrete actions. A lot of it is still up to individual Nevadans. So can you break down for people who are are paying attention or trying to catch up and and keep up with everything that's happening here as these numbers get worse? What is this? What is stay at home 2.0? What does it look like?
2: Yeah, so so like you mentioned this is sort of an informal stay at home 2.0 it's not a mandate businesses don't have to shut but essentially the governor is encouraging Nevadans for the next 2 weeks to really try to limit their non-essential activities. That means don't go out in public unless you absolutely have to. Uh, don't socialize with members outside of your household. Um, you know, Limit your errands. He was even saying, you know, try to avoid going to the grocery store if you can. If you can have groceries delivered, that's great. Don't go eat out at your favorite restaurant. Get, get takeout or get delivery. Really the goal is about reducing the number of different exposure points within the community because we have such a high level of community spread.
3: As you are all aware, our country and states are on a very rough course right now when it comes to the coronavirus and its trajectory. New cases, hospitalizations, and tragically fatalities are on the rise. The fall spike predicted by all medical and scientific experts is now our reality. Nevadans need to accept and understand this reality now
2: really i mean the the goal of this is to sort of you know have people voluntarily Make these choices that then you know will have an impact on on our case numbers and and on our hospitalizations, which I should say were 941 as of Wednesday level we haven't seen since since mid August. And the goal of this overall is to be able to have people do this again on their own without the state having to say X type of business must close or put these restrictions on or or make these sort of mandates. And I think it's also worth noting that part of the problem has been that state health officials have attributed the community spread that we're seeing actually to private gatherings and things that are happening within people's homes or in their backyards. And that's not the kind of thing the government can can really police anyways. Um, so I think the goal of stay at home 2.0 is to really remind Nevadans, you know, we're, we're in a dire situation, things are getting worse, you know, we're, we're not you know, what was happening in New York, um, you know, back at the beginning of the pandemic. But we also don't want to get to be in that situation, right? We don't want to have this uh, point where our hospitals are, are overcrowded and we're we're treating our patients in, in parking garages. And so the goal of this is, is um, the governor's given uh, Nevadans, again, two weeks. Um, so that's until uh, November uh, 24th. Um, he held his press conference on Tuesday. So two weeks out from that. Uh, to have the data turn around. And if it doesn't, he has not said exactly what restrictions are going going to go into effect, but we can expect some uh, new restrictions to take effect.
0: Okay. Well, it's a lot to take in, but I'm curious now how we got here. Um, and obviously, like I said earlier, this isn't a Nevada thing. The entire country has seen cases rise, especially in the Midwest. And there are a multitude of factors that have played into this, but I think some are unique to Nevada and and some are not. So I want to know... Is there any sense um, from the public health perspective of what's driving this surge? Uh,
2: so like I mentioned, you know, there, there has been a lot of talk about, OK, is there an outbreak at, at this place or that place? And, you know, for instance, we, we had, um, um, you know, had prison outbreaks, especially when in, when in Carson City that was reported recently. But by and large, you know, state health officials are saying this is, you know, what I said earlier, that this is the result of of private gatherings and that, you know, people are choosing to, you know, just have a couple friends over for, for a dinner party and one of them ends up testing positive and then that person goes back and sees their family and then they all test positive and then one person in that family went to another, ga- you know, it's it's this sort of incremental spread and, you know, I, I go back to this, you know, I was talking to um the health officer in rural Humboldt County at the, the beginning of the pandemic back when Humboldt County was sort of the, the almost the epicenter of the, the coronavirus pandemic in in Nevada. And, and and now it's obviously no longer that. But one of the things he was saying is that, you know, when you're in a small town, you feel comfortable with people, everyone's your neighbor or your friend, and you don't think about them as the one who can potentially give you coronavirus. And, and that's the the issue that we're seeing broadly now is that you know, we feel most comfortable with our friends and our family members, we feel safe with them. But those are the people who are probably most at risk of giving us coronavirus, not uh, for any other reason other than we just feel comfortable about uh, around them. And so we're more likely to um, not social, social distance all the time and, and not wear masks all the time and feel like we can let our guard down a little bit. Um, and, and then that's, you know, when, when coronavirus um, is, is best spreading. And then the other component of this that I should mention as well, and there's been a lot of talk about this nationally, is is COVID fatigue, right? This idea that people are just tired of the pandemic. Um, You know, they want a vaccine, they want it to end, and they're tired of staying home, and they're tired of not going to their favorite restaurants, and and just choosing uh, to make a little bit riskier decisions. And and collectively, that contributes to, to community spread. And I think this is the hardest thing with this pandemic, right, is, is changing human behavior. And how do you do that at, at a, on a broad scale? It's, it's, it's really difficult um, to do, I think. And then I guess the last thing that I should mention, uh, which you know we've been hearing about for months that there could be this fall spike in cases, and now we're seeing it. And the major driver of that is is the, the colder weather, right? We, um, we can't hold back our gatherings. We have more gatherings indoors. Um, you know, experts have said that that coronavirus just survives better in sort of this dry, cold air, right? Where's the hot, humid... Uh, climates. Obviously, it's not not super humid here in Nevada, but in other parts of the country, um, you know, that, that's what summer is like, and coronavirus doesn't do well in that kind of environment. So we're seeing that contribute to, to this, again, just sort of widespread um, sort of prevalence of coronavirus in the community.
0: So there's been this question that I think keeps coming up. It came up in the summer uh, since June, and it's come up again now into the fall. And that's the question of casinos on the Las Vegas Strip. Um, I think there's been a lot of discussion over whether or not those casinos have been a driver of not just cases in Nevada, but cases around the country as people catch or spread the virus in Las Vegas and then leave. Um, Do we have a sense now? I mean, it's November. Those casinos opened up in June. Do we have a concrete sense of the role that casinos on the Las Vegas Strip have played in the spread of the pandemic in Nevada and beyond?
2: You know, it's, it's really hard to tell. Um you know, because the, the issue broadly is that, you know, people might come to Nevada and, um, you know, potentially be exposed to, to COVID here, but then they return to their home state, um, say, say California, say it's someone who's driving here, and they, they return to LA, and they test positive for COVID in LA. Technically, there is a process in place for contact tracing, again, in an ideal situation where the you know, uh, LA County Health Authority tells California's health authority, which tells Nevada's health authority, which tells Clark County's health authority, which is the Southern Nevada Health District, that this person, you know, was in Nevada and this is potentially where they were exposed because they contracted it, you know, based on the number of days within this period in which they were vacationing in Las Vegas. But the problem is that the contact tracing infrastructure has just been so overwhelmed in Nevada that that process is not happening the way it normally would. This is a process that happens, for instance, for sexually transmitted diseases. Like this data gets reported across state lines and there is a process in place to do that. But with COVID, everything's on hyperdrive. You know, everyone's, there's so many cases and health districts are overwhelmed with just processing their own cases that often this data um, doesn't get reported back. So we honestly haven't had good data on, on, you know, what this looks like. The, The state has provided some of these numbers, but it probably isn't offering us you know, a full picture uh, just based on, you know, how contact tracing um, is working. I think it's also worth noting um, my colleague Riley Snyder during uh, this week's press conference in Carson City asked a a really great great question of of the governor.
0: So, Governor, I'm hoping you can clarify Um, you're using the phrase stay at home 2.0. You're asking people to stay at home as much as possible. Do you want people from out-of-state to stop coming to Nevada? Is there a line there that you want to draw in terms of of out-of-state tourism or people coming over from California to visit Vegas for a weekend? Should they not come over these next 14 days? No, um,
3: they certainly should come because those are protecting our jobs. But when they come here and they're staying in one of our properties, they need to wear a mask.
2: This just shows you this, you know, tightrope that the state has had to walk, right? Between, um, you know, trying to control the spread of coronavirus, but also our economy is built on tourism and having people come to the state something that maybe is not inherently good for the spread of coronavirus and it's it's this sort of um you know it's an impossible situation it's a rock and a hard place because you know if people don't come Nevada's economy suffers but if people do come are you increasing the spread of of coronavirus and again you know not having great data on it we just know that more people you know interacting with more people is, is how the virus spreads and so it's a really difficult situation that the state has been in
0: so Obviously, no one here, neither you or I, has a crystal ball, and we can't say what's going to happen in the future, but there are lots of things in place or things that are set to happen so as we discuss i mean these frankly grim headlines both in nevada and across the country as we talk about the way that hospitalizations have increased that hospitals are reaching capacity that cases overall are increasing as we approach winter months that have made uh these infection numbers grow worse as we talk about the way that private gatherings influence the spread of the virus at a time when we're weeks away from thanksgiving and christmas is fast approaching and all those december holidays you know, this is the same time that we're discussing uh, the reopening of some casinos. The Rio just got a reopening date. That we're discussing the reopening of the Clark County School District in early next year. And as we're discussing the possible availability of a vaccine as early as next spring. So with all this in mind, how is it? I mean, you talk to public health officials all the time. You're you're plugged in. How is it that we even plan for the worst. And yet it seems like are still also planning for the best, right? These reopenings are still on the books. How have you seen public health officials grapple with these two things?
2: Yeah, I think, I think it's tricky. And, and you think about too this dichotomy between, you know, public health officials and, and other government officials, right? Um, You know, I talked to public health officials, and then sort of if, if it were up to them, you would shut everything down and lock everybody inside their houses and then there would be no coronavirus. Of course, that obviously isn't practical and there's an economy to think about in people's jobs and mental health and all these other considerations. And so that kind of response isn't, isn't feasible. So I think we have, um, you know, a lot of folks sort of, again, hoping, hoping for the best. Um, You sort of have to plan for both, right? You have to plan as if, as if there's going to be a pandemic that, you know, stretches several more months and you also have to plan for, you know, okay, a vaccine comes and it's, um, you know, many doses are are available sort of sooner than expected um, and, and life can return back to normal. So I think folks are kind of planning on, on both fronts, um, I think the important thing to note about you know a vaccine as well is that we're expecting this rollout to be um, to be pretty slow. Obviously, Pfizer announced this week that its vaccine is ninety percent effective in preventing COVID. We're still waiting for them to release the the full data, so all the the smart people, scientists, can sort of pick through it and and sort of validate their their findings. But you know, if true, ninety percent is is a great rate. Um, I mean, the flu vaccine typically isn't even that effective, and so. Uh, I mean, that would be a huge boon in in fighting the coronavirus pandemic, but we're expecting that only a small number of doses are going to be available, um, you know, at the outset, and these are going to go to healthcare workers and and vulnerable folks, uh, frontline folks, um, you know, frontline workers, and the the general public is probably not going to have access to this for, for quite some time, and this is outlined in Nevada's own, you know, COVID immunization playbook. So I think, you know, we have to, obviously, I think any bit of, of good news is um, you sort of a light at the end of the tunnel for, for all of us as we've been, you know, living through this pandemic the last many months. Um, so I, th- I think we have to, you know, you know, be happy and long successes as they come, but also be realistic about the situation we're in right now and that, you know the vaccine even if it is as effective as as it seems to be um, it's still going to be many many months out and and there are you know other steps that we need to take right now to to combat this virus such as you know making sure we're still all wearing our masks and social distancing and sort of going back to these these basics that that public health officials have been sort of hammering into our brains since since the beginning
0: well we'll we'll have to leave it there for now and we'll check in next week to see how this uh, stay at home 2.0 is going so far. But if you want to know more about Megan's reporting, you can find it all on the NevadaIndependent.com. There you can find a comprehensive data dashboard with all the latest numbers. You can also find installments of her Coronavirus Contextualized series, which puts all those numbers in context. Megan, thanks so much. Thank you. With the election finished, many people from around the world had their eyes on the U.S. Host Joey Lovato and assistant editor Michelle Rindells talked with a few people from around the world to get their reactions to the election and what it means to them as people who can't directly participate in the democratic process here in the U.S.
1: All right, and so we are on the next segment of the podcast. I'm Joey Lovato up here in Reno, and I'm joined by reporter and assistant editor Michelle Rendell's down in Carson City. And we are joined by a, someone I, I know pretty well, actually, and someone very far away from us. Brage, how's it going? Hello. It's going good. Thank you. Good. And uh, Brage and I used to be roommates, and you live in Svanga, Norway, right? Yes, that's correct. All right, Brage. Why are we talking to you? <laughs> you are talking to me today
4: to get a non-American perspective on the election.
5: So, Brage, we understand that you did watch a little bit of our Nevada Independent live stream on election night. What can you say about what you know the folks in Norway were, were doing on election night? You know, as this huge decision is being made in the United States.
4: The day before the election, we wake up to the results usually. But this time, we didn't, of course, and we were all joking around if like, if the world's going to be on fire when I yeah, wake up in the morning and we're all talking about who's going to win. So I was actually quite surprised when we woke up and there's no clear winner yet.
5: What's it been like, especially the last four years? Obviously for us, you know, the news cycle has been really fast with so much crazy stuff going on on the daily basis, really. But is, is American politics a big topic in Norway?
4: Yeah, it's actually like on all the news channels for the past month, I think. There's been a headline or two every day about the American election and what we can expect and what's going to happen.
5: What's generally the opinion held by Norwegians toward the, you know, toward the candidates? Is there consensus?
4: The the news in Norway are really polarized against Donald Trump. It's kind of difficult to say that people in Norway, I think, are surprised that there aren't other candidates are running. That's because for the last four years, we we're all hearing about Trump, and we we're all hearing about all the crazy things he's doing. And they're all against Trump. It's
1: not a popular opinion to be pro-Trump in Norway, at least. Why do you guys care about American politics? What's the like reason behind the like following it so closely? It's actually kind of difficult to say why it is because it is the most
4: impactful country in the world. But it's just. The American politics has just been you know, jammed down our throats for the past 20 years. It's just every time something big happens, it happens in America. And that's what we hear about. So even though it doesn't affect us directly, it does indirectly.
1: Do you guys just grow up just kind of following American politics? Is it just kind of a natural thing? You know, most people know. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I don't, I don't know who your prime minister is in Norway. <laughs> you know, we don't follow Norwegian politics here in America. But is, do you guys grow up kind of doing this? Do you feel like a lot of people in Norway know what's going on in America?
4: Yeah, because America has been like the most influential country. All the all the movies are from America. All the music is from America. Every time, like, yeah, the space agency is from America. Every big event that's been happening has come from America. And that is why we keep following it. Also the politics, not only the uh, inventions and uh, other.
5: Was the result that... well? or lack of results that we've seen from this current election. Did that surprise you guys, especially after, you know, f- four years of the Trump presidency?
4: I think everyone in Norway, we expected Biden to win, but in the way that you you really expect him to win, but you know that Trump won last uh, time that last election, and we we're all really surprised when that happened. I honestly thought it would be that Biden would win this year, but... We didn't think it would be this close. We thought something would happen.
5: You know, we've heard a little bit about how Sweden has handled coronavirus. How has it been handled in your country?
4: It's been handled. We haven't had that many serious, many cases as the U.S. has, of course. So we are, we are shutting down. Actually, today was the day we got new rules for like the second wave is coming and we're getting told to stay inside and they might Closed down the bars and some uh, shops, but it was difficult for a lot of people in March when it hit Norway because a lot of people got put on temporary leave, for example, which is once again, we're really, really grateful for our uh, government to actually help people through this. But yeah, we, we don't actually have, have the masks that many yet. We are now it is only one city in Norway, which has mandatory masks. But aside from that, it's uh, recommended to use in public transports and uh, grocery shopping. But that's more or less it.
5: Do you guys not, I mean, is there an anti-mask movement? (laughs) Uh, We have here, you know, protesters that'll resist the mask mandates. But what's been kind of the attitude?
4: Everyone is actually very for masks. The thing is that we don't have the culture for wearing one. Nobody has one lying around. And we don't get them at the stores usually. You have to go to the pharmacy to get uh, like uh, one-time use masks. That's mostly what people use these days.
1: Is, is there a, do you notice a polarization in your politics in Norway? I mean, do you, you don't have a two-party system there. So mm-hmm. I guess that it makes it a little bit different. But do you find that like people that are more liberal or people that are more conservative, there's that divisiveness like there is in America? We don't have the same polarizing opinions
4: as, as you do in the US because we have so many different parties and they all have different views on different uh, topics. So you might butt heads when it comes to immigration, for example, or you might butt heads when it comes to to taxes. But that usually isn't connected to a party. That's usually connected to the person's opinion compared to when it comes to the U.S., where I'm guessing the party and opinion is really uh, connected.
5: Thanks so much for sharing with us what it's like. (laughs) I think it's interesting to me that, you know, I think, Everyone in the world has an opinion on this election, you know, but it's really only the Americans that get to <laughs> say, you know, how, how yeah. this is going to affect so many other people's lives. It's been, uh, it's been nice talking to you. All right. So Kirsten, you have been tweeting a lot about the U.S. election, but you're based in, is it Rotterdam?
6: Uh, Roel a small village in uh, the
5: Netherlands. Oh, okay. Is this a hobby, or is this part of your job to be keeping such a close eye on the U.S. election?
6: It used to be part of my job, because in 2008, I worked at uh, Obama's campaign, actually. I was in the U.S. then. But now it's just a hobby, but it's not just my hobby. It's a hobby of a lot of people in the Netherlands, because I think hundreds of thousands of people stayed up through the night, past Tuesday, out of a population of 17 million people. And basically, all the news here is about the U.S. elections this week as well. So it's, uh, it's, it's not just me.
5: You have said you cleared your whole schedule to be available for these updates. Tell us about kind of how your life changes as we're rolling the results out.
6: It's been a really weird week because since 2008, I've been tweeting about the elections and it was always nice and a lot of people were following it. Four years ago as well, it was pretty crazy then, I thought. But this year, it's insane. Every tweet I put out gets a lot of attention, retweets and likes, and they're talking about it throughout the whole country. I've been on national radio a couple of times already, and it's the attention is just massive. In the Netherlands, basically, most people, when they try to follow the elections, they watch CNN, and they turn on to like 538, things like that on the internet and so New York Times. That's, I think what people, most people follow, but I've I have like 500 pollsters, state officials, <laughs> campaign officials and uh, news outlets that I follow. So people, you know, think it's pretty handy to follow what I'm doing and it's become kind of a community this whole week everybody's in it together and there's a lot of memes being shared or memes. So it's it's quite fun as well, but it's also pretty tiring. (laughs) I haven't slept a lot.
5: Yeah. So you've kind of curated your own set of news sources and experts. And I saw that you did retweet our very own John Ralston. So maybe people that the general public doesn't know exists, but you having your unique...
6: Insight. Yeah, and I, th- I think there's not a lot of people who do that, not even in the U.S., because uh, what I see in the U.S. is that most people who have lists, they have lists that are compiled of people in their own state because they're interested in their state results. We, of course, are interested in, in all the results. So that's a slightly different, I guess.
5: What is the, the reaction you're getting from folks in the Netherlands about the Electoral College and how it works and, and why we have
6: it? It's funny because here in the Netherlands, we sometimes joke that we don't know. Well, it's a joke, but it's actually true that we don't know who the leaders of the political parties are in our neighboring country, Germany. And we really don't. We know Angela Merkel, but for most people, that's about it. But we do know which counties are important in the second district in, in some state in the United States. And we know who's running there. We know about the, the runoff races in Georgia. So it's, there's so much interest in the United States here, and there's always it, it's always been like that. And so I tweeted earlier today that I would be speaking to you because you're interested in why people in the Netherlands are interested in uh, the U.S. elections. And I got a lot of funny results, but there's a lot of truth in there too. It's, it's a combination of a lot of things. First of all, it's the culture, like the, the movies we see, the series we watch, the books we read, the music we listen to. A lot of it comes comes from the U.S. So we know about the United States. We've been there. A lot of people have been on vacation. We're very interested in the political system, not the two-party system, but like the values from the Constitution, things like that. They're examples to us. But it's also the importance of the United States on the world scale. Yesterday, the U.S. officially left the Paris climate deal that to us has and it has a direct impact on us, because if the US doesn't try to fight the climate change, then it impacts us as well. Same thing goes for NATO retreating from NATO, as uh, Trump has suggested, also has a direct impact uh, on the Netherlands and other European countries. There were also some funny examples like, yeah, well, we really miss the West Wing, so we have to follow the real soap, or that we are disaster tourists, or that, you know, there's nothing else we can do in lockdown because the country is in partial lockdown again. And all of those things have some truth in them.
1: How are people reacting to, or how, how have people reacted to President Trump over the last four years?
6: I think a bit similar as in the U.S. I mean, there has been there have been polls in the Netherlands every four years, like who would you want to see as president, Obama or McCain, Hillary or or Donald, and and the same thing this year. And usually, it's about seventy to eighty percent of the country that is in favor of the Democratic candidate, or even more. The same thing this year. What we see a lot is that when something happens in the United States, it eventually ends up happening to us as well. So, for example, campaign tactics and strategies, like canvassing and things like that, those things have popped up in our country as well, but way after those things existed in the U.S. And the same thing with like all those people that believe in conspiracy theories, and that has popped up here as well. And you've experienced more violence from one political party towards the other. That's also happening here. And mainly with the same arguments as well. It's the same type of reasoning that people use. It's the same topics. It's about uh, not believing in climate change, not believing the coronavirus uh, is is really a threat, believing that immigration is a threat to the country. It's, It's even the same topics, even though it's on the other side of the ocean.
5: And do you feel the U.S. has set that tone and really sparked that? those trends that you're discussing
6: i think maybe that's true yeah yeah I, yeah i think that's uh, that's true uh, at, at least in a, in, a, in a part of that yeah and
5: and from your perspective you discussed that the climate change issue um, what is the biggest way the biggest thing that you think could shift depending on the outcome of this election for for the folks in the netherlands
6: for us, that's difficult because I think it's it's a lot of things, but it's, I mean, the, the, the politics in the U.S. is a, a lot about cultural wars right now, identity politics. Uh, it's very negative on the atmosphere, I think, in both countries. So I would like to see that change.
1: You seem really like uh, plugged into American politics, I'm assuming more than most people in your country. Do you, when you talk to people about American politics, are there what are things that people talk about that they don't understand? You know, obviously, like, you're not part of the system. So are there things where people are like, oh, I just don't really understand the Electoral College or why this works or why that works? Or,
6: I think the exact same questions as in the US. Uh, for example, how, how does it work with the Electoral College? Today, I've been getting questions about what's a runoff? What's a provisional ballot? So it's a lot about the details because in general, mm-hmm. people know a lot. They know how many states there are. They kind of know which states there are and Sometimes they even know who who governors or senators are. I think uh, a lot of a lot of people in the Netherlands know more about American politics than a lot of Americans. Really, it's not just me. There, there's a lot of people that are very interested in, in U.S. politics and 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 know a lot about it.
5: Even the folks that don't vote for Trump have trouble understanding the phenomenon of Trump. But I, I perhaps even more, you know, in the Netherlands, is it just a culture shock, like to to see. Trump's approach and...
6: No, it depends. I mean, there's a lot of people here that are actually in the Trump camp. It's the same as in the US. And it's also very polarized. Also the exact same thing. I was on a Dutch radio uh, station earlier today and they were saying that Democrats or people that have sympathy uh, sympathy for the Democrats are surprised about why so many people support Trump. I think it's even more than that. It's not just surprise. But it's also astonished. My husband says astonished. We, because, and that has to do with the fact that there's so much fact-free politics and fake news coming from Trump. Tens of thousands of times that he lied, misrepresenting what the Democrats want, to do and say. And the fact that a lot of Trump supporters don't care about that. They literally don't care about that. That's astonishing to a lot of people. At the same time, there's also a lot of people who do support Trump, who say he's keeping his promises, he built the wall, he packed the court as he promised, he got out of the Paris Agreement, and they see that as a good thing. But because it's so polar, it, it is incredibly polarized because the other party believes in the exact opposite thing. So they just find it to be unbelievable that people can support something like that. And I think that in the US, uh, the sentiment is the exact same way. Yeah.
5: All right. Well, thank you so much for your insights. You have a, such an interesting background, So I'm really glad you're willing to be on our podcast.
0: If you want to read Michelle and Joey's full piece, you can do so on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There they talk to a few other people from overseas.
1: All right, and so we are on the third segment of the podcast. I'm Joey Lovato up here in Reno, and I am joined by our photographer Jeff Scheid down in Las
3: Vegas. Jeff, how's it going? Hey, Joey, it's going great. The weather's beautiful here, and just kind of enjoying the day.
1: Good. So, Jeff, we've been doing these these end of the end of the show segments where we're talking to people at the indie and kind of learning a lot about them. You're one of our first photographers. And we've got kind of a a small army of photographers now, but you were, you were really one of the first, first two. How did you end up getting your start? Like with us, you know, we've been around for four years now almost.
3: Well, it was kind of ironic. I, I was, I've been, I was a photographer at the RJ for 35 years and uh, they, we kind of parted ways. And I thought, what, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Kind of thing. And I think I texted John and I said I heard there's a really good photographer available, and you know I I can maybe set up a, a meeting or something with this photographer. And John got <laughs> back and says, are you available? <laughs> so, yeah, so and I didn't, I, you know, we kind of we were kind of joking about it. It was an advertising luncheon with the local PR people, and John and E were there, and they they were talking about their the Nevada India and the vision they had. And that's the day when basically they announced that they're going to be using me a lot as the indie photographer in Southern Nevada. So it was a nice feeling. I'm very grateful for the opportunity working for the indie because it keeps me very active and still being able to produce the photography that that I enjoy the photojournalism. And I find that with with the opportunity, if I've never, you know, I've worked used to work with Jackie, or I knew Jackie through the years when I was photographing at re, at the courts, and she was the court reporter at the time. Mm. So I knew her, and and so then it was kind of I was thought, God, it'd be really fun to work with Jackie someday. And now we're now we're working together, and it's the same thing with Megan. I didn't know Megan as much, but you know, it's so much fun to be able to work with Megan. And I knew Luz before before the the indie. And so it's just such a wonderful opportunity of, of reconnecting with old journalists or new, you know, new journalists and, and working that way. And you know, I think I'm going almost to my fourth generation of being a Nevada photographer. That's kind of wonderful too, because I have that opportunity of having that institutional knowledge. And then with the the energy that these young journalists have, it's it's really keeps me quite energized.
1: One of, one of my favorite stories- of and you, you as well, Joyce.
3: So I just
1: you know. <laughs> well, I, appreciate, I appreciate that, Jeff. I, one of my favorite stories of you and I was when you, me, and, and, and Jackie, we were out in rural Nevada shooting some stuff for, for some, some rural education stories. And we were in Ely, and we were in the Chinese restaurant in Ely. And someone like walked in, and you just happened to know who they were. And then I think another person walked in, and you knew who they were, too. And I'm like, how are we- It's like the middle of winter in Ely, Nevada- like, no one's here, and Jeff just happens to know, like, two people that walked into this, like, small, wet restaurant. It was so funny. So I think that really speaks okay. to, you know, I'm a photographer for 40 years here.
3: Yeah, you know, and the thing is, too, is, like, and through the years of photographing the world of batter, you, you run into somebody, you do a story or photograph them, you talk to them, and then you won't see them for 10 years. And you walk in, and you stop at a you know one of the watering holes or a restaurant in rural Nevada and they say, Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Where you been? So it's kind of one of the they they once once they knew you in rural Nevada, it's like your friends forever there. So it's really a, a neat thing. And and you know, that's what's cool about Las Vegas or Nevada. where we we have the Reno, we have Las Vegas kind of an urban city, but yet we're very small in the rest of the state. So we get that opportunity of meeting a lot of really cool people.
1: You, you seem to just know everybody in Nevada, and it's amazing, and it's super fun to go out and, and shoot with you. But I'm curious, you know, this year has been a lot different, obviously, for everybody, I think, with the pandemic and everything going on. How has it been, you know, shooting photography during the pandemic, and then also during an election year? I mean, it's a huge year for photographers, right?
3: Well, you know, the thing is, at the beginning of the year, it was like, it was non-stop. I think, I think we we're going out so, you know, especially down during the caucus for those leading up. I think we're doing, you know, 9 a.m. assignments all the way into 11 o'clock at night, especially the mm-hmm. final week of the caucus. And and that was pretty crazy nonstop. And then when the pandemic hit, it pretty much shut everything down. And, and then when, when towards the end here in October, when, when President Trump started doing his his campaigns through here, and it was kind of... I had mixed feelings about going out there because being I'm kind of the the older at risk age graphics-wise, I, I you know I had part of me wanted, you know, I, as a photographer, you want to go out there, and the other part, well, I gotta protect my health. But I found it, you know, and that was kind of interesting on in that contrast because that never really changed. The the Trump rallies never really changed. But when it came to when we had Kamala Harris here. We had to, uh, she was social distancing, so we had maybe a panel of four people. That's not visual. I mean, doing a panel discussion with people with masks on. So that was, a, that's the a real challenge as a photographer. So you, I guess you try to work on the smiles, kind of photos, so you get the eyes <laughs> and the smile and try to see what you get. But it, it's that's been real, real, you know. And I kind of miss that. It is the expressions on people's faces that we're not able to see during this last couple months before the election. You know, and on election night, we had the I was at the GOP uh, watch party at the South Point, and and a lot of the feeling there that they don't like masks. So I was able mm-hmm. to get the emotions of that of, of those photos, and that was because that. At that time, Trump was leading in there that night. All of them were very nervous. They'd, they'd celebrate with a win. Maybe a Senate would, senator would win from Alabama, and they'd cheer. But then they'd get back in and put their hands on her chin and just study mm-hmm. the map. And it's like, that was that was good photography, because then you got to see that kind of stuff. And yeah. then the other day, with the Biden rally with the Hispanic community over at Commercial Center, it was that you can see the emotions there and even with their mask on, you could tell that they're very excited about the outcome.
1: Well yeah, it's been it's like I said, it's been an interesting year. And do you have a do you have a favorite assignment that you've ever gone on?
3: It's always tough on picking your favorite because everything's a little different. Mm-hmm. But I I would think if anything it was probably doing the political book. know nevada 2020 and what i liked about that photography and and especially political photography and i i I really think that if if you want to be a really good a good photographer shooting politics you can't just go and i call it second base action just stand up on the podium and photograph the speaker that that is just like that that doesn't have much excitement and sometimes because trump can be very exciting animated and even even Bernie Sanders can be very animated. And that's kind of fun because you get their hair going. Well, and Trump's <laughs> hair never moves. He does, he does have good <laughs> facial expressions. Yeah. But I do find that that it's around, it's the emotions. And and I found that like of this election, there's a lot of quite a few candidates, you know, and I I, I think Trump and Bernie Sanders really brought out the emotion and and the only time and i was thinking back on the years of photographing presidential candidates uh obama was probably the the most emotional and i wasn't working at the nevada india at the time but i photographed this this black family it was the mom and her son and she had her arms wrapped around him and he had tears running down his eyes and I always wondered, whatever happened, where's that boy at now? Because we're talking about 10 years now, so he's probably a teenager, maybe in high school now. But I, I want, you know, because that impacted him, then, mm-hmm. you know, that that hearing, hearing President Obama talk. And I saw that, too, when with Bernie Sanders, right around Christmas, he had OEC over at Chaparral High School. And mm-hmm. just the emotion on people's face they're hugging and crying and and those are that's when you know that a candidate is is really connecting with the audience i don't i didn't see that with president president elect biden is kind of a little more challenging i do think that this pandemic may have helped him out that he was he didn't have to go to these rallies because he mm-hmm. he's more of an analytical guy he's not the one who he, he seems lately to really get people more more fired up but i i found him sometimes as being the crowd really was more listening to him as opposed to emotionally reacting sure yeah
1: well i think on that we'll call it a wrap here but i wanted to just say that again Yeah, we have that nevada 2020 book on the indie website the indie swag store if you want to check it out it has all of the Democratic nominees and President Trump at the time. So it's some, got some great photos from Jeff and also from our other photographers, Daniel Clark and David Calvert as well. So, Jeff, thank you so much for, for chatting with me.
3: All right, man. You take care.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters.
1: We'd like to thank Megan Messerly, Michelle Rendell, Brage Eidzevic, Kirsten Verdell, and Jeff Scheid for being on the show this week.
0: If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen.
1: Do you have thoughts about the podcast? Let us know by emailing me at joey at the or jacob at the
0: Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find it on Spotify and Bandcamp.
1: Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato.
0: And I'm reporter and producer, Jacob Solis.
1: And we'll talk to you next week.